What's going on, nerds? Before we get to this episode of Nerds on History, I want to take a second to talk to you guys about our other podcast, Nerds on Film. Every week, Brian, Sarah, Kevin, and myself talk about movies, we make some jokes, and we say a lot of bad words. And if you're a fan of bad words, you're going to want to go listen to that podcast after you're done listening to this one, because Nerds on History won't let us say f***, c***, mother huge and tiny little or enjoy. Hey, Eric. Yeah. Have I got the stumper for you? You claim to be an expert on ancient Egypt. Well, I don't like to toot my own horn, but yeah, all right. Well, so let's see if you can answer this one. On what day of the week was the Pharaoh Hathshepsut claimed to have died? Oh, God. Well, let's see. What Let me give you some thinking time. music. Yeah. All right. Brian, what? God! What was it doing? What? What? What's wrong? Oh, one more second. One more second, and we would have gotten sued. For what? Are you serious? Do you know what you were humming just now? Yeah, I was humming the Jeopardy theme song. You know who, who created that song? Yeah, it was Merv Griffin. Yeah, you know how much money he's earned in royalties? Not really. 70 million. What? Yeah, we can't afford to be sued. 70 million dollars? Yes. So what happens if I were to sing a little bit more? Like, how much would we have to pay? A lot. Don't do it. We got, like, freaking $14 in Hot Pocket money. Damn you, Merv Griffin! Damn you! Welcome to Nerds on History. I'm Eric Brickmont. And I am Brian Moriarty. Howdy, buddy. How How you doing, sir? Oh, man. It's been a rough week. Yeah, Yeah, it's been a rough week. Yeah, it's been a rough week for me, too. Yeah. Do you want to talk about it? Yeah, sure. I'll talk about it a little bit. Uh, earlier in the week, I uh, lost someone who I was uh, particularly close with, my uncle-in-law, uh, Tio Fran, and uh, we lost him this week to, uh, to a battle of cancer, um, esophageal cancer, to be specific, and uh, we found out about it back in May, I believe, and it progressed very, very aggressively, and... Um, these things, they, as they say, they happen, and it doesn't really make it any easier, that kind of prep time, but I'm happy that he's no longer in any kind of pain, and I've spent the past few days reflecting a lot about the great memories that I had of him, and have of him, I should say. Uh, the past 11 years, I've known him pretty much the entire time I've known my wife, and he's been always a very generous, very kind totally amazing and supportive person and one of the few people you know uh in the immediate family who knows english really really you know solidly and would always talk to me at parties and stuff like that and i don't want to dedicate this episode to him although i am tempted to i'm gonna wait and i'm gonna wait till halloween because he was so many conversations we would have like about things that were paranormal and stuff like that he was really into kind of stuff like that so i want to save that dedication for our halloween episode but um yeah, I just wanted to, you know, I should share. I just Absolutely. wanted to share. No, no, and I think you don't understand how powerful cancer can be until you've experienced losing someone because of it. Yeah. Before I lost my nani, someone would have my sympathy, but now that I've gone through that whole process and seeing someone slowly just kind of just go away, yeah. you know, it changes your perspective on it completely. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah. I mean, I flirted around with the idea of skipping this week and not doing this episode, but then I always remembered how excited and enthusiastic Teofran was, you know, whenever he would hear that I was, 
you know, doing my podcast and doing it on history. Exactly. He would have wanted you to do this. He, he would have. Absolutely. I, I know that 100%. So that's why I'm here. And I'm, you know, I'm in good spirits. I'm happy that he is no longer suffering or in any kind of pain. Because the last few months were, were kind of rough. And I'm ready to do this. Good. 100%. Good. Well, I know our condolences with Neuronomy are with you. I know our listeners have it with you. Thank you. And friends in a better place. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. He's in a better place. 100%. So, well, let's go into some listener feedback, shall we? Yes, let us do that. This week in listener feedback. Uh, Our first piece of listener feedback comes from Erica. Huh, amazing name, by the way. She says, hi, guys. I wonder why you say that. Yeah. No bias whatsoever with that statement. (laughs) None at all. Uh, She says, hi, guys. So stoked that I won. She's, of course, referring to our recent Facebook contest. Uh, was a complete fluke, really, that I happened to log into Facebook just as you guys posted the question. I knew the answer, though, because I love listening to all the Egyptian history you guys put out there on the podcast. Of course, the uh, the question was, what did Hepshatsut uh, suffer from? A medical condition that millions of other Americans do, which the answer is... Diabetes. Diabetes, that's right. You know this question, the answer to this question. This is a real one, not a fake corker like I was trying to do before. Oh, good. So how did the Egyptians test if you had diabetes? You died. Oh. <laughs> well, I was, see, I was told there was a very simpler answer to this. And maybe this is a myth. I don't know. You would know hmm. better than I would. Very simple test. Um, they would pee. And they would see if ants would crawl to it. Because if you, your body is not having enough insulin in it to process sugar, your blood sugar is going to have a naturally higher content to it. So naturally, it's going to leak into other elements of your body, like your urine, for example. This is crude. I apologize. But uh, that was a simple way of knowing that since they knew that the ants would attract sweet thing, you know, be attracted to sweet things like honey at this point in time, that they would be able to draw some sort of parallel between that and... Hmm. I've actually never heard of that. Really? Yeah. I've heard of the Egyptian pregnancy test. We've talked about that before, I think. Which one was that? So if a woman uh, would urinate into a small cup, right. uh, they would then place two seedlings of emmer wheat. And, oh, right. it, and depending, yeah, if, if it would germinate... Then they knew that the woman was pregnant, and this was, of course, because the hormones that were inside the urine would would actually help facilitate that. Gotcha. So it was a real pregnancy test. They thought that depending on the way it germinated, de- determined the sex of the baby, which is not true, but it was pretty much a surefire pregnancy test. Gotcha. Andrew, that's very, very fascinating. The Egyptians were very smart people. Yeah, they, they knew how to do a lot with urine. Yeah, they did. Yeah, who knew? Just like, can you imagine going to an Egyptian doctor? Hey, doctor, I've been having some uh, some stomach problems. Really? really? Pee for me. <laughs> <laughs> what? Just just pee for me. It's okay. It'll be fine. It's fine. Here, here's a look up. <laughs> you know, that was the answer for everything. Yeah, just, just you know, take a pee. I, I broke my leg. Oh, that's terrible. Pee for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's very important. What's I need that you to urinate solve? right Don't now. Don't ask questions. Just follow my advice. Trust me. <laughs> so, uh, we digress, of course. Erica continues, Anyway, I know people have uh, so far just been putting shout-outs to their friends and family when they win. I would like to do something different. And uh, this is what we are doing different for her. Nikola Tesla rocked. He was a much better inventor than Edison and a largely unrecognized genius. And you know what? You can oh, quote me on that. We plead no contest to that statement. Yeah, whatsoever. absolutely. I agree 100%. Uh, she then goes on and says, uh, and you guys should totally do a show on the history of electricity. We've been talking about doing a Tesla versus Edison uh, podcast for a while now. We yeah, the only problem happen. is one of us has to be Edison, and neither one of us want to. It, they're, they're, I believe there's an epic rap battle of history 
on Nikola Tesla and uh, Thomas Edison. You know what we should do? We should do a Nerdonomy special feature, and we should act out the roles of Tesla and Edison and get in a fight, like an argument on air. That'd be really funny. We should absolutely yeah, do well, that. Because you play Tesla because you have the beard. I mean, that's kind of already by default. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right, cool. All right, hey, there you go. There you Look, go. This is how genius is born in the moment. Listener feedback. Listener feedback. Erica would also like us to uh, give a special hello to somebody. That would be her son, Alexander. Alexander, you have an excellent name, a very famous name, a name throughout history. Go to school, do well, do honor to that name. Thank you. All right. Well, I think we've got one more piece of feedback. I think we have two. We have two more. Well, one is from Melissa. Melissa actually was commenting on our magic episode. Ooh. From uh, you're, you're in for a treat, folks. Uh, so, okay, so I just listened to your, your podcast on magic, and I'm a little, little disappointed. You didn't mention Abbott Magic Shop in Colon, Michigan, my family's hometown. And interesting, it is the magic capital of the world, and we have one full week of magic in August. That is awesome. I am surprised I didn't find that in my research. That is really cool. Feel free to plug. Lol. Have a good week. And oh, by the way, our cemetery is full of magicians, including the famous Blackstone, who I think we mentioned in our episode. If we didn't, Blackstone Sr. was around the same uh, time, early magician, uh, as about Thurston and Herman the Great, and uh, like may, even, I would say, but after Robert Houdin. Uh, and his son actually was also a major magician. Hmm. So, yeah, he's from that classic era of stage magic. Well, nothing to do with magic, but interesting tie-in. Blackstone was the original nickname given to Blackbeard. Interesting. Yes, this is true. And you would assume that maybe it had something to do with, you know, parking his ship off of stony shores and whatever, right? But it, it just turned out he suffered from kidney stones frequently. Really? No. <laughs> None of that is true at <laughs> all. Gee, you had me fooled. <laughs> <laughs> I did for a minute. You fooled me. <laughs> All right, one last bit of listener feedback. This comes from uh, a very special listener. Of course, the, the very famous Sarah Ashley of Nerds on Film fame, who uh, texted us today, both of us actually, because she was just listening to our recent episode and wanted to give us a little bit of insight into uh, the phenomena of black cats. Sarah, for those of you who don't know, is actually quite involved in the uh, the world of animal adoption and what have you. Big supporter of animal rights. And um, she wanted to let us know that uh, the black cat superstition deeply affects animal shelters across the United States. Uh, the black cats stay in shelters longer and in larger numbers than any other cat that's out there. Uh, that The cultural idea of evil and bad luck has essentially people thinking that, again, cats have kind of like a bad personality. Which is, of course, absolutely not true. And, you know, people also think they just kind of look dull and plain. But uh, it's interesting because shelters, particularly in the United States, oftentimes have deals to kind of encourage people to adopt black cats. Uh, one of our cats, Saki, she was a $10 cat. They had a special $10 deal. So that's what Martha and I call her, is the, the $10 kitty. Yeah, totally. And actually, black cats have are of that breed have fewer medical problems than um, other breeds of cats. I remember watching a special on Animal Planet about um, but both, they went over both breeds of dogs and breeds of cats and hmm. the, some breeds of black cats, uh, very low maintenance hmm. uh, as far as upkeeping with health. So, you know, it's to your benefit to get a black cat. Yeah, well, that's and Besides good. that, if you have a neighbor that gets, you know, that pisses you off, you just put it in front of their yard. 
Just have it walk back and forth. Just train it to walk in front just of train people. It. Very easy, dude. You put a little cat treat on one side of the driveway, <laughs> and then once they go over there, then you put another cat treat on the other side of the driveway. It, it, it really is a two-person job, but the it results totally, are amazing. Well, if you plan it right, only one person. <laughs> but the benefits last a lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of animals and adoptions... And what oftentimes happens to animals when they get adopted, spade and neuter your pets. Well done on the segue, sir. That, that, I have to. It just, it, you know what? It just came to me. It just came to me. Oh, good, because I was going to do the segue song. <laughs> and it turns out we didn't need to do that. That's awesome. For those who don't listen to Nerds on Film, uh, do. So. <laughs> do and understand. And of course, I'm referring to who, the famous person who would always end that famous show with those words. Uh, of course, the famous game show host, Bob Barker. Bob Barker. And uh, those words are so famous now that Drew Carey still says them when he closes out The Price is Right. To a considerable amount of controversy. Really? Yeah. Is, it, is he ripping off his, uh, does he feel like he's ripping off the, the words of Mr. Barker? No. You know, Bob Barker, obviously, huge animal activist. Became... Yeah, yeah, the ASPCA, like, he was really involved with that, and that's oh, why yeah. he was saying to do that and he became uh, very involved in the 80s and continues to be involved now and what's interesting is that during his tenure on the price is right he refused to allow any kind of animal products come in as prizes so that includes you know fur coats and leather bags and things of that nature and since he has left the show those restrictions have actually been pulled out because they're no longer part of his contract essentially his contract said only way I'm hosting the show is if you agree to not have these things on. Drew Carey was like, I don't care. Let's do it. And so now it's interesting on The Price is Right, you'll see not just leather bags and, and you know, fur items, but you'll also see, uh, you know, meat products that people are winning, like, you know, a whole year worth of steak or something. I don't know. And uh, something you, you didn't see before. Another interesting layer to this, Whenever they uh, release any kind of episodes of The Price is Right on, uh, you know, digital media or VHS or whatever it's been over the years, yeah, they've been prevented from showing any of the old, old episodes, you know, way back pre-Barker, uh, or even in the first uh, of its second run on television in the 70s, when Barker hadn't quite gotten into the animal activist period, uh, because it had animal products that were being showcased as items on the show interesting so those first few episodes of the price is right that aired back in the 70s cannot be purchased on home video that's fascinating did you also know that bob barker was a black belt or is a black belt in karate i have seen happy gilmore so yes i am aware of that <laughs> he's got a good right hook doesn't he that was the best part of that movie <laughs> it's a total guilty oh, pleasure totally. i love that movie for the fact that it is so very stupid and it's a stupid Anna Sandler My favorite movie, but. moment was actually not in that movie. It was when he and Adam Sandler won the best fight at the MTV Movie Awards that year. <laughs> yeah. And in his acceptance speech, he said, so they promised me a part in Happy Gilmore 2, including a love scene. And this is like Bob Barker at like age, what, 70 at this point? You know? Maybe a little older, yeah. Maybe even a little bit older. That dude's got balls, I gotta say. You know, yes, but, and we do not want to see them, so thank God <laughs> that never happened. Sorry for our young listeners. But anyway, we're really not sorry, but we're just saying sorry because, you know. We want your parents to keep listening. Exactly. Yeah. Folks, can you guess what today's topic is? Ding, 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 ding. Game shows. The oh, history wait. of game. What? We're not doing a history of, of spading and neutering pets? No. All right. Very well, then. 
Yes, of course. Game shows. Yes, we're did doing... Did this again, didn't you? Yes, I did. Uh, a history of game shows. And this is, this is an interesting episode for us. And it actually kind of heralds back to some of our earlier episodes, like our, our episode on television, because we're, we're touching on a topic that is not uh, not too old. Uh, it's something that's within recent memory of people who, you know, are alive. <laughs> Sometimes we yeah. reach back a lot further than that. So this is kind of refreshing. Absolutely. Well, let's first of all take it back to where the whole concept of these game shows really came from. Because really, if you look at any of these early game shows, they're kind of ridiculous. The premise is less about actually accomplishing winning the game and more just about having fun. Uh, it wasn't until really later that the concept of like strategizing and trying to actually win the game came through, where actual game logic was started to be integrated in. If you really think about this, game shows are just really an extension of party games. Not, and I'm not talking about like board games, like let's go together and play Yahtzee or something at somebody's house. If you think about the games that were played at parties in like the late 19th century and early 20th century, a lot of these games were just social games where it got you interested in learning more about people's personality, right? It was more of a way of just getting to know people. Right. They weren't designed to be particularly hard. They were designed to get people to be social. Exactly. There was no objective, really. The game was just that you had to do what was asked of you, right? And if you didn't, it was just kind of, you know, it's just all, all in good fun, right? When you get to these early games that happened in like the, you know, the late 30s or so, you start to see these exact same concepts come up. Now, sir, can you tell me what is the first, often conceived of as the first broadcast game show? Mm, are we talking about radio or are we talking about television? Excellent question. Yes. <laughs> okay, well, if it's radio, it kind of depends. Because there's a couple different ways that you can answer this. One would be to answer it as uh, actually more of a segment than an actual straight-out intended game show, if you will. Elaborate. So the uh, the radio show Vox Pop, uh, which was a radio program that was uh, being broadcast out of Houston back in 1932, actually had a segment where the host of the show would interview people on the street. Totally natural, totally in the moment. And they would ask them a quick trivia question. And if they could uh, answer it, you know, they ended up uh, on the show. So it was more of a segment than it actually was meant to be a specific genre, if you will. But it certainly caught on because after that, you see multiple kind of imitations going on across other radio shows to the point where they're like, you know what? This could work as its own standalone. And what is oftentimes considered to be the original radio game show that is not television but radio back in 1936 was professor quiz now this premiered on cbs radio and uh, became extremely popular essentially you were able to ask a question to professor quiz and uh, those of you who were able to stump him would walk away with 25 dollars which hey back in 1936 that was, that was uh, a lot of money especially big bucks this is the height of the depression we're talking about absolutely yeah 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 well actually that is all true However, the, what is commonly conceived of as the first television game show, now I did say it was, it was radio, um, a lot of the radio shows that were translated over to television um, are the ones we, we can kind of know of if we were to look into the early stuff, like You Bet Your Life and... Oh, you Bet Your Life. So... Truth or Consequences. And we'll get to those so in a second. So amazing. Yeah, oh, absolutely. But the first one actually was in Britain. It was not in America. It was, oh. It was one that was called Spelling Bee. And mm. it was 1938, so technically it's a little bit later. But it was broadcast on the BBC. Not by much. Not by much at all. Uh, and it is conceived of as the earliest broadcast television game show. Premise, super simple. 
It was a spelling bee. <laughs> That's all it was. It was a grown, grown adults being asked to spell extraordinarily long words <laughs> for money. That's all it was. But then, as you notice, as you get into like the early 1940s, a lot of these games were still experimental because television, as we talked about a year ago mm-hmm. in the, uh, the Lost Network or the Forgotten Network, a lot of these things were just experiments. They weren't sure what to do with television at this point, right? So you know, during the day... I mean, there's a great scene in um, the movie Avalon, made by Barry Levinson, and they address the cultural obsession with television, right? They, they, the, the family is so excited that they plug it in, and then they see nothing. <laughs> like, they see <laughs> that old Indian head, like, default, like, blank screen that a lot of the stations would play. And that's what they'd have on all day, because they're just waiting for something to happen. And then around, like, 7 or 8 o'clock at night, the programming started, and they, they would just be glued to the television, so people were fascinated by, by primetime TV. But there was also, that I don't know how accurate that movie really is, because as far as I know about television, there's always been daytime television. But it was always for stuff that they weren't really, again, sure what to do with, because they knew that prime listeners were going to be, you know, at night after people had gotten home from work and had their mm-hmm. dinner and things like that. So game shows were originally just kind of done as experiments during the daytime. And if you look to today, a lot of game shows that are on are still on, during the day, with the exception of like Jeopardy, and which started have, as a daytime g- a game show, but now it's a primetime syndicated show. Um, same thing with Wheel of Fortune, both of course, by the way, owned by Merv Griffin. Um, Damn you! Sure, <laughs> sure, but like middle of the day, like who who wants to be a millionaire? A primetime originally game show is now a daytime game show. Yeah. They've gone through like several rehosts at this point, and several different reconceptings of it too. Actually, I don't even think they're making new episodes. I think it's only uh, reruns at this point. Is it? I don't know because the ones we watched now, um, Meredith Vieira has left the show, but now Cecil the uh, is it Cecil the Entertainer, Cedric, Cedric, Cedric thank the you. Entertainer. Thank you. You're thinking uh, of Cecil uh, B. DeMille. <laughs> I am. Uh, Cedric the Entertainer is the, the host of it now. So interesting choice. But um, can you imagine if Cecil B. DeMille chose the name Cecil the Entertainer? <laughs> I am the entertainer of millions. <laughs> Be interesting. Yeah. Only man I know to, to remake his own movie, by the way. He made the Ten Commandments not once, not twice, but three times. <laughs> <laughs> it was just that important to him. Well, he was going for ten, but they ran out of money. Actually, I think it was only two. I don't know. It was two or three, one of the two. But it was actually, I think it was his last film. The, the one he did with Charlton Heston was like his last film. Hmm. Anyway, moving on, tangent aside. Um, the one I find really interesting... That was the first kind of experimental of these early TV shows was one called Truth or Consequences. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And this guy again, this is a pure example of kind of that previous statement where we're talking about a lot of these early games weren't really about the concept of the game. It was about making them laugh, making right. your audience laugh. Because the concept with, with Truth or Consequences was you pull people from the audience, uh, not in like you know, Price is Right, right, and they have two seconds to answer a, a question. And they generally make the question so hard to answer that nobody can answer the question within two seconds. So it's deliberately set up to fail. And the reason why is because if you can't answer the question truthfully within those two seconds, you must suffer the consequences. Oh, my God. <laughs> and usually it involves these very ridiculous obstacles. Uh, interestingly enough, do you know who one of the hosts for this show was? Uh, Cecil B. DeMille. No. So the first host was a man named Ralph Edwards. He hosted it all the way from 1950 through 1957. And then he had a couple guys like Steve Dunn and Jack Bailey. But then, from 1956 to 1975, Mr. Bob Barker. Really? This was his first big game show hosting gig. 
pre <laughs> The Price is Right. Or actually, uh, The Price is Right may have actually lined up with it. He may have been doing both shows at one point. Yeah, well, the original Price is Right aired in uh, 1951, I think, 1950, 1951. Uh, a very different game show that it would eventually evolve into. But what I thought was interesting is that the the showcase showdown that we're familiar with, the, the 1970s reimagining, which was actually originally called The New Price is Right, mm-hmm. was a, a viewer-based game. So you as the viewer could play for a chance to actually win the showcase of like 10 items that they had on the show by sending a postcard in with the exact value of how much the total you know products were worth. And some people got so good at it that they sent it down like to the cents, like how much it would be worth. And they'd have like these strange runoffs where they'd have to try to do tiebreakers and stuff like that. It was all through snail mail back in the day with postcards. Uh, but that would eventually get incorporated into the final kind of round or the final uh, element of the show when it was uh, reimagined and reinvented sure. later in the 70s. But you know what? Back then, snail mail was very fast. Yeah. It was a lot faster than we would think of it being today. Now that we live in the age of email and faxing, we've kind of gotten lazy on snail mail. To the point now where we're considering canceling all weekend service. Well, yeah. well they weren't. They, Congress kind of shot that down. But the post office was saying... You know, we don't need Saturdays either. We can let's just take the weekend off. It's because they they're just they're losing money because everyone's doing FedEx or email. Now. Yeah. So another interesting tangent here: uh, FedEx actually doesn't have an air fleet anymore. Not FedEx, sorry. The Postal Service no longer has an air fleet. They've been renting space off of FedEx's uh, planes for years now. They still have ponies, though. There's only three of them, but um, they're very hardworking. Yeah, I thought it was just for ceremony, but <laughs> no, no, no. They're 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 still being used. Yeah, um, mostly for meat. By the way, uh, Truth or Consequences debuted on NBC. NBC uh, had a lot of good uh, game shows on in the early days. And we'll talk about one of the more famous ones, and more, I should say, infamous ones in a little bit. And it officially ended its uh, run on NBC in 1965. I think that was the point where it became syndicated. And it's considered, it also holds the record as being the first television show aired on commercial television, as opposed to like public television like PBS. And the show was produced in Hollywood, so, you know, I'll share a little interesting factoid about uh, Wheel of Fortune in a little bit that has a connection to Hollywood. And then you have all these great shows from the 1940s and 1950s. We were talking about You Bet Your Life. A uh, big reason for why that show is so funny is because for many years it was hosted by none other than the late and great Groucho Marx. Yeah, I actually believe through its entire run, was it not? Or were there a couple of years where he wasn't hosting it? Well, so here's the thing. The original run of the show from 1949 all the way through 1961 was all Groucho Marx. Hmm. Uh, however, there was a revival of the show in 1980 that had Buddy Hackett as the uh, Okay, that the instantly host. does not count. Yeah. It but should the, be struck from the annals of time. Yeah, none of the ones lasted very long. Uh, so that one lasted for a year. There was a third revival, or second revival, I should say, with Richard Dawson. There was only a pilot and never took off. And then actually there was a 1992 to 1993 version with Bill Cosby hmm. as the host. Interesting. Yeah. I gotta say though, I mean Groucho, Groucho made that show. What of course, it was. because he was so good. So this was fascinating. With this show, they would take the audience and they would interview them. The producer of the show, uh, George Fenneman. This is of course the original version I'm talking about. Uh, he would interview members of the of the audience, and he would kind of weed out the ones that were less interesting. He would basically were trying to find the ones that were the most talkative, mm-hmm. right? And uh, basically, what they would do is they'd get him in front in front of Groucho. And Groucho had some scripted jokes, just in case the, the member of the audience wasn't that talkative because they couldn't find anybody good. 
And the goal is that they'd ask questions. And of course, for those who never saw these old You Bet Your Life, they would they would place bets for how much a person from the audience would not be able to say the secret word. And Groucho's job as the host is to kind of coax the person into saying, into saying, saying the secret, the secret word, word yeah. right? And they would fall down on that famous wooden duck, uh, right? And of course, he would be introduced in with the the famous Groucho Mark song. Yeah. Hooray for Captain Spaulding. There because from, yeah. from 1928. Duck soup, of course. Oh, no, actually. No? Animal, animal Crackers. Oh, that's right. Animal Crackers. I always do okay. that. It was a Robbie musical that was converted into a movie. Uh, it was one of the earliest Marx Brothers films. Um, and that was one that he was became famous for. Um, but at this point, he was not using the grease paint mustache. He was just, you know, his the mustache you saw at this point on television was real. So... Not relevant whatsoever. But the any- duck, however, had the fake mustache. It did indeed. Because the duck actually came down with a little cigar and, and glasses and yeah. everything like that. Exactly. The great thing about when he would get a talkative host is he could. That's when he could really shine. And just do improvise and do all these great gags about it. I remember one that was great was uh, talking to a woman, and the woman asked him, "Have you ever made love to a Frenchman?" And he had, gives this awkward look. He's like, "Well, not that I know of." <laughs> <laughs> And obviously, this show was wildly popular. Uh, it was, and I believe this was on CBS, if I'm not mistaken. I think so. I will say though, because of Groucho's notorious sense of humor and his uh, ability to go completely and totally inappropriate, this was one of the first shows that was filmed, then edited, oh, absolutely, and then released. Totally, and they did that on purpose. So they shot it long, and they cut out not just for the raunchy bits. Uh, but also for the boring elements, because they weren't, again, the, with you're dealing with live people who are not trained performers, you're not really sure what you're going to get. And that's the standard for a lot of television. It's the standard for our show. We record long and we cut it down by about 10 to 15 minutes because we say things that we don't want you guys to hear. So, Oh, the outtake reels are well, true we, gold. We have like an outtake reel that's about, what, four hours at this point? I think so, yeah. Not yeah. just us, also nerds on film. Oh, of course. No, totally. And I can't wait for the time we release that to the audience. Uh, if we can, because some of the stuff is like, no. <laughs> some stuff is just hilarious. Some stuff is just like, that can never be said, repeated. Unless people want to pay for it. <laughs> what I will say is amazing about the show is that even though it went through essentially five or six different rewrites of the rules, essentially it was five or six different shows that all based off the same basic theme and idea. You know, they just they changed away the, ra- the way that the, the rounds and game were played. Groucho still made it work. Oh, absolutely. And tied it all together and made it the success that it was. Great, yeah, and that says something about his uh, caliber of performance skill. You yeah, know? especially at that time in his career, because sure. it was definitely on a, on the declining slide. You know, this was not his his greatest moment. In fact, he didn't even really want to be on the show originally. He thought it was really probably not going to be a good fit for him. But after doing it and having you know not only being coaxed into being like the fifty percent provider for the uh, for the actual show itself, he you know he brought it into existence. But he had so much freedom, so much creative freedom with it. He thought, you know what, this is actually a lot of fun and yeah. for all those years. Well, you know, there's also the fa- aspect of that Groucho made a lot of money off of the Marx Brothers films, but he also lost a lot of money in the Depression, Yeah, too. He had a lot of investments that totally went down in the tank during uh, the 29 crash. So he had to work really hard to get that a comfortable living back. And I think part of getting that lifestyle back and maintaining that lifestyle was doing You Bet Your Life. Well, you know, you spent $7 million on mustache combs. There you go. You only got yourself to blame. Exactly. Yeah. Well, he learned his lesson, didn't he? <laughs> I mean, there are tons of game shows from the early 1950s all the way up to the early 1960s that we could talk about. But I would like to transition into probably the most infamous one at this point in time, which is, of course, 
21. So infamous uh, that the fallout from it completely and totally destroyed the game show industry for decades. a couple of decades and spawned a very, very successful film in 1994, Quiz Show. Yeah. And go ahead, get us started on it, because well, it is a fascinating story. It is really an interesting story. So, well, first of all, let's talk about the, the background of that, because at this point, we're starting to see the game shows that actually require you to know something, right? Mm-hmm. We are starting to actually see quiz shows come up, where we want to now applaud people for their trivia knowledge, right? I'm sorry, trivia knowledge, I just have to state real quick, it's such an oxymoron. It is. The origin of the word trivia and and the word trivial are deeply ingrained with one another, and it's meant to imply that uh, whatever you're saying is so insignificant, so unimportant. Uh, And obviously that's where kind of the the genre is built out of, right? They're just totally random questions. They don't have any true meaning. They're just associated with with the, the nature of the show. But I, I'm sorry, I, we're all, all over the tang- tangents today, but uh, I, I thought it was worth mentioning. Well, really what we're talking about now, to take it out of trivia, is really talking about popular culture, right? And this is where it became very much about answering those types of questions from all different types of, of areas, you know, arts and entertainment, if we're going to go the trivial pursuit route, you know, leisure, uh, sports, science, things like that. And so the whole premise of 21 was that you had to answer 21 questions, Right, and uh, if you got there, you were winner of the game. And uh, they actually tried doing a revival of this show in the early two thousands with Maury Povich as the host. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, it didn't last very long. It was the same premise, and it was even like you were put in the sound booth with the headphones. Mm-hmm. All that same imagery was evoked. Now, why was this so controversial? For those who don't know, well, the big thing that really was the controversy about, about this show was a guy named Charles Van Doren. Charles Van Doren was the son of a, of a famous professor, Carl Van Doren, and he himself was a very well-educated man. He had gotten his degrees from some of the best schools in the country. Uh, he got his education at St. John's College, Columbia, and he was actually a professor at Columbia University in New York, so an Ivy League school, you know? A guy who should know his stuff, right? The moment he got on the show... Pretty much he was approached by the producers and said, you know what? The audience loves you. We want you to keep winning. And so they basically started feeding him the answers. They roped him into a deal where he, it was a very, uh, I mean, Charles Van Doren himself explained it in his own memoir uh, that he felt it was very Faust-like. It was a very much like he was a Mephistophel, I think the word is uh, Mephistophelian is what they said. He felt like he was making a deal for his soul. And as the, the thing goes on, you know, eventually what ends up happening is, you know, the truth came out. I mean, I'm, I'm greatly summarizing the story, but the truth came out about what was happening. And unfortunately, he not only got fired by NBC, um, but he also lost his job at Columbia and his family was disgraced. His son talks about this too. His son, Mark Van Doren, um, talked about how for years he, he couldn't get a job because of what happened to his family. And I mean, it took him 15 years, 50 years to really be able to open up about this. He only made the memoir about two, three years ago. So, you know. Well, to add another layer to this story, the, the show itself, 21, was really, really not doing well. <laughs> the show, when it first aired, they had two people on who were getting all of the questions wrong. And it was everyone watching two people failing. 
and they decided, you know what, this is not a good formula. If we're going to last beyond the next episode, we need to do something now. So right from the get-go, before Von Doren ever even got on the show, they were already coaching people so that they would have at least one winner, one person who they felt, well, this guy's probably not going to be able to answer all the questions. Let's give him a little bit of help. He's going to be a lot more entertaining than this other person anyway, so we want him to win, so he'll come on to the next episode. And then they would find that other person who either was smarter than him, was answering the questions legitimately, or was just a better, more entertaining match, and start coaching that person along. In fact, before Van Doren came on the show, uh, for quite a few uh, uh, weeks, in fact, six weeks, uh, Herb Stempel was their was their champion, and he was doing it all by himself. Extremely intelligent, encyclopedic like knowledge. Uh, and this guy, you know, he he. This is the guy who was played by John Turturro in the Quiz Show film. Yeah, th- this guy is the most boring person on the planet. Yeah. His zero personality, and as such, they thought this is awful. We can't have this guy on here. And that's when they started coaching Van Doren so closely, so specifically just so they could get this Herb guy off the show and get somebody in there who was a lot more entertaining. And Van Doren, you know, he kept going uh, with all of this, even after Stempel came out and said, you know what, this was, I was approached by the producers of the show. They actually told me that I need to dumb it down, that I had a great run, I won a lot of good money, but they were ready for somebody else to come on the show. And they were going to compensate me. I just needed to leave. I just needed to vacate. And so I, I took a dive. And this other guy was coached, and this is what's happening, and I don't think it's right. And everyone's like, oh, this guy's nuts. I don't believe it. There's no reason to believe him. He's just, you know, sour grapes because he got beat by this other teacher, and they ended his big run. That was until uh, not very long later when another game show, they ended up finding that one of the contestants was carrying around a notebook. And that notebook had all the answers to the questions that were being asked for the show. And they said, uh-oh, we're in trouble. And that hit the news, and it went wild. And immediately they went right back to, uh, you know, heard Stempel's testimony and said, this guy was telling the truth. And that's what broke the news. And that's what, you know, like you said, destroyed Van Doren, destroyed the producers of the shows and their careers, who they never worked in television again after that. And it very nearly destroyed game shows in general. Yeah, and the ramifications of this was it now started to breed what they called an anti-egghead culture, right? Uh, Basically, if you... Really, the term egghead now became a negative term. Like, oh, well, you're a know-it-all, right? Yeah. Because you now knew the answers. And, you know, it it really just bred this, unfortunately, a very anti-intellectual sentiment across the country. Which is very sad, because the whole point of these shows was to promote knowledge, right? Really, it was just to get people to watch. But the overall premise behind a quiz show in general is to promote people knowing, and also so people can play at home, right? That's the half the fun of watching a game show, is trying to answer the questions at home, along with uh, everybody else. Oh, absolutely. You want to believe that that average Joe Schmo can get up there and win $100,000. It means that, oh, my knowledge that I have, because I knew you know more than half of those questions is worth at least half of that money, if not more. It's very, very uh, satisfying. And it's probably why my grandmother was such a huge fan of game shows. She watched them for years. And I remember as a child, her screaming and swearing at the television when Jeopardy came on, because she thought she knew all the answers. And she would say the most 
horrid things to Alex Trebek. Things that a child should not hear. But, you know, we've talked about a grandmother before. Oh, it's this grandmother. <laughs> yeah, it's this grandma. She, she, uh, <laughs> she said some pretty awful things. They used to throw things at the TV. It was really bad. But she did have her redeeming shows. There were a few shows that she was okay with. But whenever it was like a t- trivia quiz-based show, she thought she knew it all. And you watch out. Keep your head down in the living room. Grandma was pissed. <laughs> well, here's the funny thing. Because, yes, by the late 1950s, early 1960s, which was when the whole 21 scandal really took place, I think it was circa 1959, if I'm not mistaken, from my knowledge, game shows really didn't go away necessarily, but they did change pretty dramatically, right? We see a transition more back to the earlier game show format, which is more fun-based, less about knowledge necessarily. Well, they had to. Uh, this actually went to Congress, and Congress had to amend the Con- the Communications Act and actually made it specifically in the law illegal for quiz shows to fix their answers. So now there was no more of this theatrics, no more of the staged element uh, which people were completely and totally duped. You know, they didn't want to believe it. And not every quiz show was doing this. Certainly not. You know, some great quiz shows, like the ones that we've mentioned before, like Bet Your Life or what have you, they were all 100% real. And many of them took a direct hit because of all of this. Bet Your Life ended its its run right after all of this went down, right after all this news broke out. And I think it was 1958. And there were seasons that followed that after it had being up in the 10th most viewed program and the United States now dropped down to like the 30th or below the 30th. Nothing they did, but it was just the ramifications. Yeah, it basically, and it just, what it came down to was just distrust. The American audience distrusted all game shows now because one person got greedy, you know, essentially, and wanted to make the show interesting so that people would watch it. Exactly. But it would have its comeback. And like you said, it kind of had to change. Uh, and it, game shows became a little bit less about winning money and more about having fun, like yeah. you said. And, and go ahead. Well, I was going to say the panel genre was kind of born. Thank out you. Of I was, that. I'm glad you were going to mention that because you have like match game, and then you mm-hmm. get like password, Hollywood squares, of Hollywood course. squares, of course. Uh, the hundred thousand dollar question, a hundred thousand dollar pyramid, sorry, the sixty four thousand dollar question. And let us not forget the dating game and the newlywed game. <laughs> yes, indeed. Let us not. Some of the most hilarious moments on television history. The most, the strangest place you've ever made whoopee. In the end. <laughs> Genuine answer by a woman. Oh, yes. Um, <clears throat> well, indeed. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, really. Some of the most ridiculous moments in television history have come from from game shows like that. And that's where, again, it kind of picked up in popularity again, right? People were willing to accept it now. And it was back in people's lives. It was back during daytime television predominantly. And uh, that's when they started branching out a little bit, right? So in and around the 1970s, pretty much every network on television had gotten rid of game shows, with the exception of CBS. CBS has always been very, very generous to game shows, and yeah. they kind of wanted them to be around. And well, now that color televisions were becoming more and more popular, they have an opportunity to catch people's attention with these brighter, uh, flashier totally. games. Yeah, I would say, though, that the stations themselves, I think primetime game shows definitely went away. What you notice is a lot of affiliates now picking up these syndicated game shows, which were not, you know, some of them did make the transition from network game shows to syndicated game shows. And again, they just became daytime or early primetime uh, television instead of what was 
the major work that you would see from the networks directly. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, they, they gain popularity not just with the people watching them, but with the sponsors who would eventually make them into what they would really become. Because game shows are predominantly funded by the companies that have their items featured on them. Like, The Price is Right is a perfect example of this. Product placement. You have all these great things that people get to win, right? They have a cash value attached to them, right? So you can really tell what their value is right up in front if you don't understand what it is. But you then see the brand, you see what the product is. It's perfect advertising for anyone who wants to get their stuff seen. And let's think about in the 1970s, who were the uh, the people who were home most often? And it's just the nature of the time. But, you know, housewives were, were very still very prominent. Uh, women would obviously, you know, go on to dominate the workforce, and that would all change. And this was that transition period, right, out of the 1960s. But there was still that kind of housewife element, and that's what these advertisers were gearing it towards. And they were throwing tons and tons of money at the network to get their stuff on there, and that money was being turned around and used as cash prizes. So now you had an opportunity for them to actually start getting out cash again, even though it was all very heavily regulated. You weren't allowed to give too much money away. There was certain rules on how many people could stay on the show and for how long a period of time. And this continued really up until the 1990s. Yeah. Uh, and this was all born out of that original game show phobia that started as a result of all the scandal back on 21. It's amazing what just one show and others at the time that were doing it, their contemporaries, but that one show that received the most attention would just dramatically change uh, the whole way that sure. this would play out. And I would even say that with the exception of Jeopardy, because Jeopardy definitely qualifies as a quiz show, um, but I think with the exception of Jeopardy, you didn't really start to see a really strong quiz show reemerge until Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And even then, that took a lot of hype behind it, too. Who Wants to Be a Millionaire is an interesting show, because that is all about the sensational quality of having a million-dollar prize. If you're on Jeopardy... You you earn small amounts. Unless you're Ken bit. Jennings. Yeah, 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 we'll get to that. Yeah. But you, you earn these small amounts as you go along, and you really have to make a lot of effort into it, because not only are you competing against the questions, but you're competing against two other deemed equally intelligent people uh, who you then have to, uh, to cut off at the pass, right? There are no turns, per se. You have a buzzer. You have to click in. And if you get picked, you get the opportunity to answer it, and you better be ready to do it, because you've only got about 10 seconds to answer that question before Alex Trebek you know, signals that, eh, eh, and they move on to the next person. Mm-hmm. So Jeopardy takes a lot of effort, whereas with Who Wants to Be a Millionaire is just the, the show of it all, right? Think about it. You have this person who's brought to these two seats. They're in the very center of the room. Uh, it's almost got this interrogation-type setup going on, right? It's very dark. The The audience is not illuminated. Everyone is surrounding the person. High pressure, high stakes. And it is fun to watch, but eventually just kind of got a little boring. And remember, it debuted in the UK first. This uh, has always been a UK phenomena. And it had all these different versions that sprung up around the world. I think uh, one of the most famous examples uh, was made famous, of course, by the uh, movie Slumdog Millionaire, where you, you see the Indian version of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Uh, and it had all these different spawnings everywhere. And in the U.S., again, spawned a whole new genre of these million-dollar game shows. But it died out really quick. By 2002, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire had moved on into, like you said earlier, into daytime television. 
and with it their super high-profile celebrity, Regis Philman, the Reg, was out. He was gone. He was back doing, you know, Regis and uh, Kelly. And uh, we, we got left with, uh, what's her name, Meredith? Uh, Meredith Fiera, yeah. Yeah, who's a nice person, great person. I think she's an excellent television personality, but she's no Regis. Sure. Yeah. So it, it really kind of declined. The hallmarks that have stayed with us, who were introduced in the 1970s and have become the powerhouse, who have survived all the other attempts at game shows. There's a whole network dedicated to game shows. Oh, I know. I I watch it whenever I'm bored. Yeah, exactly. And the weird obscure ones, too, they're only on for like a couple seasons. Yeah, 13. Dog or... 13 episodes. Yeah. That's what you were given. Or essentially 13 weeks. You could have multiple episodes in the week depending on the format of the show, right? Yeah, and Who Wants to Be a Millionaire originally was on like five nights a week. Absolutely. In prime time. So you you had a chance, and if you became successful, you moved on. Very few people survived, or very few shows, I should say, survived for as long as some of these big guys did. And where did they end up? Well, they all ended up in TV graveyard heaven, right? <laughs> they're, they're on the, the this channel that's taken huge advantage of it, and that's what we do when we're bored. We watch these yeah. old reruns of some great shows from, from way back in the day. Sure, and a lot of it now, I think, comes to just the pure nostalgia of watching some of these really, really old things. Well, what I find, though, interesting is those those ones that survived. Uh, Wheel of Fortune, Jeopardy, and The Price is Right are, are still, again, when you think of a game show, at least in the United States, that's what you think of. Uh, the Price is Right was a lot of fun, and it, it had so many episodes, 7,500 episodes. Wow. Yeah, and that was actually of a few years ago from the information that I'm looking at now. And this is also, no, these are people who are on the air 350 days of the year. Yeah, you know Bob Barker. You know he served as host uh, for for years, and that is that is really saying something because from 1972 to 2007, Bob Barker showed up pretty much every single 35 episode. years. 35 years. That's a huge, huge commitment for anybody yeah. in any any line of work. Uh, but to be up there on stage and do this every single day, pretty much every week out of the year. Is, is pretty wild. Uh, Wheel of Fortune has had a long, long history as well. Uh, and uh, Vanna White, Vanna White is 56 years old. She doesn't look it. She does Pat not Sajak look Jack kind of does at this point. But. He's kind of melting, I've noticed. <laughs> and yeah, and not like in the happy way that you're, oh, my ice cream cone is melting. I mean, More he like, looks good, don't get me wrong. He looks good. I just don't think he looks as young as he, as youthful as he used to. I don't think he looks that great, personally. I think, so? oh, okay. <laughs> I think he's starting to, starting to catch up with him. Uh, but him and, and Vanna have been doing the show for, for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Vanna White has the world record for being the person who has clapped the most on any television show in history. She claps on an average of 720 times a second. Now, that's averaged, obviously. So, you know, as they're pulling away from, uh, from you know, the end of the show and they're showing the whole audience, she's always clapping. She's clapping for everything. She claps whenever somebody gets something right. She claps when the wheel is spinning. <laughs> she's clapped so many times that on average she claps 720 times a second in her wow. time. I'm wondering if her palms are numb at this point. <laughs> she suffered from extreme nerve damage. Yeah. That's actually why they had to switch it <laughs> from, the, from the letters that flipped to the touchscreen. It had nothing to do with technology. It was just that Vanna was in such pain every time she tried to move <laughs> yeah. one. She's literally lost the ability to bend her hand to turn the letters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, an interesting fact that I read, though, is that uh, that show, unlike many of the others, 
sometimes had some really, really long recording sessions. There was a lot of cutting, a lot of time in between, and uh, it was not uncommon for her and Pat Sajak to go out and have three-course meals and have along with them several margaritas. In fact, Pat Sajak in his autobiography admitted to being drunk multiple times on the show throughout the years. Uh, that uh, they just didn't really care at that point. <laughs> they were so stuck into their jobs, and it was such an easy thing to do. In fact, the whole show itself is really easy when you think about it. You're picking letters, trying to create a word. The most difficult part's at the very end when you have to pick what are the best letters to use to come up with your special phrase or word at the end. And there's a lot of random happenstance and chance, right? So there's a wheel that spins, which is 4,000 pounds, by the way. Four thousand pounds four thousand pounds that's crazy I, yeah two I, tons i was absolutely blown away when i read that but it's, well then it's again, it doesn't have to stand up it just has to turn right still though, that's a huge wheel can i share a fun fact about yeah, wheel of sure. fortune so wheel of fortune is filmed at sony pictures uh studios in culver city california no it's the same place where like you know lots of major motion pictures have been made Sony Pictures, of course, was the original MGM lot. Mm-hmm. Kind of ironic now because they now own MGM. They bought them about five years ago. And uh, my grandmother lives, like, down the street from this studio. Oh, so. my God. That's, like, that's like a dream for anyone over the age of 70. Oh, right, right. <laughs> but what's great is, like, whenever the first time we went down to Culver City, I mean, I talked about this back in the Forgotten Network episode where we talked about going to... Um, Paley Center, right? The the television, uh, Museum of Television and Radio. But before we did that, she just kind of drove around Culver City and Hollywood just to show us where all the major studios was. Like we, we were allowed. She knows she would like she'd talk to the security guard. And she they just let us drive into Paramount. <laughs> like we could have gotten away with murder at that point. But there's wow. like oh, you just let them, just take let them take a lap around. Found out interestingly enough. Do you know where Jeopardy is filmed? Jeopardy is filmed in, at Desilu. I didn't even know Desilu was still around, but Desilu Studios is still around, and they uh, they shoot Jeopardy in that old hmm. space. And Desilu was not just known for I Love Lucy; it was also the producer behind Mission Impossible hmm. uh, when it was on television. They did lots of other great works in the '60s and '70s. Well, considering Jeopardy's had its run since what '84, I think it was. That, that's probably the only reason that studio still exists. Probably, and uh, as we've now said, Merv Griffin's probably gave, made that studio a ton of money. Just off of the uh, title. Yes, he's music laughing alone. from beyond the grave. And, and certainly he is. I, I was absolutely uh, being truthful during the cold open. Uh, he, it's so interesting during that, the, the, that uh, final Jeopardy moment, right? When they have the music playing that do, 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 do. Again, legally, that's all we can do. He wrote that as a lullaby for his son. Hmm. And he thought it sounded great. And he thought it would be the perfect addition to kind of lull people into the sense, uh-oh, time's running out. Better get going. Uh, and it became so popular that he has made $70 million in royalties over the years. Well, his family is now living off those royalties. Exactly. Yeah. He, they could live off of just the, the that few seconds of music that they play at the very end. Comfortably. Yeah. yeah. Let alone everything else that he built in his media empire. But that, sure. that, to me, just blows my mind. Yeah. Well, I'm sure he's making lots of money off of Wheel of Fortune as well. Sure. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Tons of money about the, off of that. Now, while we're on the topic real quick of Jeopardy, of course, we have to talk about Ken Jennings, who you mentioned a little bit earlier. Uh, Ken Jennings was featured on 75 episodes of the show. And he's the only, he was the first Jeopardy, I, wouldn't, I was going to say only, but I think he's the, now the first 
uh, the first Jeopardy contestant to earn over one million dollars uh, throughout the course of his of his run. Absolutely incredible. And you know it, what blows my mind is the the question that actually ended up ending his run, which, which I was? think is just kind of funny. And the result of it was just hilarious. So uh, the uh, the question uh, was. Um, you know, mo- okay, well, not the question, right? Because you have to respond in the form of a question. But uh, the answer was, uh, most of this firm's 70,000 seasonal white-collar employees work only four months a year. And Jennings, uh, Jennings responded, what is FedEx? Probably thinking along the holiday times and things of that nature. Uh, the correct answer is, what is H&R Block? So oh. tax season. Right. Uh, because of the advertising that this gave H&R Block... They now provide Jennings with free tax preparations and financial advice for the rest of his life. That's awesome. Just because that way, the way he lost was so high profile that it, it just shot H and R Block's numbers through the roof. I'm wondering, did they also pay offer to pay the tax on uh, the million dollars he won? Uh, I very much doubt it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I asked that question because H and R Block one night for like one week on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, they offered all the the money tax free. Did he win more than a million dollars? I think it was like 1.3 is what it was. Oh, I thought it was more than that. Yeah. But, you know, federal law says if you win more than $10,000 as a prize or an inheritance, you can be taxed up to 40% yeah. off of that. So he walked with, you know, maybe $700,000 of that money. Anyway, that's why that whole H&R Block thing was important, because when they did Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, I would say in like 02 and 03, like you were talking about, right when they were trying to do new things to make keep it interesting, they took a week where... H&R Block paid all the tax on it. So if you won a million dollars, you were walking with a million dollars. And that gave more incentive for people to play. Well, of course, he would be brought back for, uh, again, a very famous moment in game show history. And that is when he would square off against Watson, uh, the artificial intelligence that was put up against Made by Wolfram Alpha, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, who beat the crap out of him, by the way. Uh, well, of course, it's a machine that's designed to prove someone else wrong. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why people keep trying to go up against that. Remember the the chess match against uh, was it uh, Blue? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Which is only one letter away from Clue, and if you've seen Tron, that should make you very nervous. <laughs> <laughs> oh, again, reminding our listeners why we're called nerds on history. Thank you, Brian. You're very welcome, sir. <laughs> a couple other interesting moments in in recent game show history, because remember all the old stuff. Most of those tapes were destroyed or recorded over. It was a lot of it was shot on video, which does not survive and preserve well. So you don't have a whole lot from those really early shows. But you get everything from now, right? Because it ends up on YouTube and it survives uh, in the interwebs yeah, for I mean, all you get, time. You get plenty of stuff from the seventies too. I think from the seventies on, when they really had pinned down a, a solid way of videotaping. Yeah, things. and and not destroying things when yeah, they're done with it. Exactly. Uh, what I find interesting, back in uh, 2008, uh, after Drew Carey had taken over the prices, right, he had a contestant on there uh, by the name of Terry Nines, uh, who pretty much blew away everybody uh, when he got the exact amount for his showcase, which was $23,743. Wow. So, of course, for those who haven't seen the show, maybe some of our listeners from overseas who don't get the prices right or what have you, in the showcase showdown, you're shown a whole bunch of different stuff. It can include, like, you know, jet skis and a trip to the Bahamas and a water cooler, everything. Or right? like a brand new kitchen. Yeah, it could like be that. really small things, it could be big things. But you have to guess without going over what essentially the, the value of this prize is, what the showcase is. And he guessed it exactly down to the dollar. 
what's interesting is that he had pretty much stated because there was a little controversy afterwards like was he cheating how was he cheating pretty much that he had watched the show so many times and because they oftentimes reuse different showcases or prizes in the showcases they had a really good idea of what it was ballpark and you know how he got 743 hmm. his pin his pin yep he just threw it out there that is so dangerous, the fact that he revealed that. I mean, obviously, he had to change it after he... Oh, certainly. Well, yeah. he only revealed three numbers of it, so obviously there's there's one more number, but you could pretty easily guess what but that's it was. What, that means you have a one in ten chance of being able to figure that out, though. <laughs> well, one in nine, right? One in yeah. nine, exactly. So, pretty incredible, uh, neat moment on uh, on The Price is Right in its history. Yeah, um, definitely. While we are, of course, talking about interesting moments in game show history at least from from the recent times we've talked a lot about the the older scandals i think we have to mention quickly the more modern scandal that happened sure sure and this is actually referencing by the way including the 21 uh stuff uh crack.com we've mentioned it on nerds on film uh they are a satirical website they used to be kind of like the uh, second rate version of mad magazine where they would do tons of spoofs of uh, movies and things in comic book form. Now they just write really awesome blog articles uh, that are very intelligently researched and very satirical, but also, you know, in the true nature of satire, bring up some serious points. And this one is uh, the five most was notorious game show cheaters, I think is what the title is called. That's right. And this is number five. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there was a game called Press Your Luck. Pretty simple game. I'll give you the premise. Three contestants sit down. You have the host of the show who uh, provides them with questions. If they answer the question correctly, they earn what's called a spin. So at the end of the question round, they then get put before a large light-up board. Okay, so essentially it's uh, it's got uh, 18 squares that surround a, a larger interior square that's just meant to, you know, kind of uh, green screen over the, the picture of the person for the, for the viewers at home. And uh, you have all these different little boxes up there. So the boxes have different values in terms of cash value or prizes, uh, and then you can earn additional spins depending on what you land on. And then there's also kind of like a um, like a you lose space, right? So you, uh, you they're called a whammy. You land on it, funny little animation comes up and it erases all the money that you've earned. You press your luck by continuing going with your spins. Once you've finished your spins... Uh, you can choose to pass at any time, by the way. If you do, you pass those spins on to the other player, and they have to play. So let's say they have a really high amount, and you've got one spin left. You might want to pass it on to them in the hopes that they get a whammy, and you eliminate them. So there's a little strategy involved. Our story starts with a gentleman by the name of Michael Larson. Michael Larson was a out-of-work truck driver who was doing part-time ice cream truck driving and decided that... Uh, so he wasn't really out of work, was he? Part-time. I mean, hmm. it wasn't a full-time gig. It was only every once in a while when they needed him, right? They'd call sure. him in gotcha. and drive an ice cream truck. Uh, pretty much one of the creepiest people that you would ever see. This guy kind of looks like the Wolfman. And, and he not, seems very overly energetic, too. A little too much, yeah. yeah. Uh, not, not the kind of person you want around your children selling them ice cream. Regardless, this guy decides he wants to get rich quick. So he thinks of all these different schemes and ideas, and he ends up purchasing a lot of different televisions, a whole bunch of them, and putting them on and putting different shows on all simultaneously and trying to watch all of television to try and find something, some sort of get-rich-quick scheme. So he ends up looking at game shows, and he finds Press Your Luck, and he just seems so interested in it because here's this board with these seemingly random events that are happening on there, and he's wondering, can I figure it out? So he spends six months 
watching the show, recording it on VHS, playing it back, trying to find out if there was a way he could beat the show. And he figured out the system. So pretty much this guy who's a truck driver turns out he was an idiot savant. He was terrible at life choices, amazing at mathematics. There you go. (laughs) So he was this puzzle solver. And he figured out the system that they were using and decided, all right, this is my one last chance at life. I'm going to do it. I'm going to borrow some money. I'm going to fly to L.A. I'm going to go to a thrift store. I'm going to buy a shirt for 68 cents. That's exactly what he did before he went on the show. And I'm going to try my luck. I'm going to press my luck. He sits there, and he gets on the buzzer, and he hits the buzzer the first time when it's spinning all around. You hit this buzzer to stop it, right, just the right spot. And he misses. And it screws things up, and he actually hits a whammy. He loses the little bit of money that he had. Uh, But that's exactly what he wanted to do. He wanted to do it early in the show because even though he had figured out the system for how the lights came up on the board, he didn't know what the response time was. He wasn't able to figure that out so closely because of editing and things like that. So he had to actually experience it. Once he did that, he was in the zone. And he figured out that if you numbered all of these different panels, 1 through 18, that number 4 and number 8 never had a whammy appear in them. And that there were five different computations that ran through five different possibilities and if you knew the pattern for how these lit up if you could memorize the pattern of how they lit up on the screen and knew when they recycled themselves then you knew exactly when they hit the button to make sure that you didn't have a whammy because you would always get into either four or eight now that sounds a lot easier than it actually is trying to imagine these complex patterns i think it's almost 30 different ways that the lights light up in each pattern but he figured it out he knew how to do it and he started winning a little bit and a little more and a little more and every once in a while he'd make a mistake and thankfully he didn't get a whammy but he would end up somewhere else and he was okay but maybe only two or three times in the whole time that he did it he did this like 54 times or something to that effect and you can hear the host the host was going nuts he's like what the hell is going on are you sure you want to keep on going maybe you should stop now because no one had ever won as much as he won on that show he ended up walking away with hundred and ten thousand dollars and the two other contestants that were sitting next to him they dragged along because they had to actually do it they had to air it over two different days because it was going on for so long wow we're absolutely furious one of the guys was like totally playing it off he was really happy and all that giving him hugs and like you're crazy you're crazy the other person you could tell she was noticeably pissed she knew something was going on how could he possibly be doing this because then you know he would he stopped at a hundred thousand at first he passed it on to the other person to this poor woman who then has to hit the the button and the second she does she gets a whammy oh, <laughs> you know and they these other two people the other two consistents are just failing miserably and then she tries to pass it back on to him and this is the most interesting part when you watch the show because whenever somebody passes spins you have to take them you have no choice so he was happy to stop at a hundred thousand he wasn't anticipating having to keep going and he ended up having to do three more turns one of them he made a mistake and he almost lost it all and it's just so fascinating because afterwards he walked away and he walked away with the money even though the producers were like something is up there's no way that he could have done this statistically you should get a whammy one every six time and he ended up completely blowing the system out of the water because he knew how to beat it but they looked for every way they could get him every clause and nothing worked because he didn't cheat he was just being an entrepreneur. He's being really smart yeah, and really I clever agree. about it. I mean, 
he didn't really cheat. I mean, he learned the patterns of the system, but he still made mistakes. It was still him taking a chance. Absolutely. And he, and he did make mistakes, but very rarely and very few of them. And he walked away rich in that sense. Not a whole lot of money, 110000 you know, still a good this chunk is, of change. But this is in the early 80s, though, right? Uh, earlier, late 80s. I don't remember. Okay, so, I mean, that's... Still a lot. Po- yeah. point in time, that's a decent amount of money. And he moved back to Ohio, mm. right? So he, that was even more money in the Midwest than it was out in, in Los Angeles. So why is the story so tragic? Well, like I said, he didn't make very good life choices. He loved the whole idea of getting quick rich and now thought himself to be the supreme intelligence. And so he found a local radio show that was willing to give away $30,000 if you could match the serial number from a $1 bill with the one that they were posting on air. So what does he do? Gets about $40,000 in his money, makes it into $1 bills, sits in his apartment with his girlfriend at the time, and sifts through every $1 bill, trying to find the correct serial number so he can get an extra $30,000. He does this right around Christmas time. Has to leave the house for a Christmas party, leaving $40,001 bills in his apartment across various bags. You can imagine what happens next. He gets burglarized. Yep. Someone breaks into the house steals all of his money (laughs) well merry christmas to them uh he would eventually end up uh dying of cancer years later uh not a terribly wealthy person alienating the majority of his family and going down in history as a very clever man who failed miserably that is very tragic and depressing i have to mention one last thing uh because i think uh, this is getting close to a time when we should probably start wrapping up but I could not stop if we didn't talk about one of the most bizarre moments in uh, all of game show history. One that wasn't revealed until just recently, really. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a name to you. I'm going to see if you remember it from, from the news recently. Have you ever heard of Rodney Alcala? Only when I was looking at this article. I'd never remembered him. Okay, so you, you read down to this part then. Yeah. So... Uh, Rodney Alcala is in prison right now, and uh, he's been charged with several counts of murder and rape, and is believed to be potentially one of the worst serial killers in human history. And he was a game show contestant. (laughs) On The Dating Game! Oh, that's not horrifying at all. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, In 1978, just one month after he had killed someone, someone he was convicted for killing, he appeared on The Dating Game. And this was not the first person he had killed, mind you. He appeared as contestant number one, was asked a series of questions to which he gave semi-charming but now equally terrifying responses to. Uh, For example, bachelor number one, what's your best time? He responds, the best time is at night. She says, why do you say that? Because that's the only time there is. Not creepy at all. (laughs) And I think he was trying to play off as being kind of suave and kind of, you know, giving semi-sexual innuendo-type responses. But when you realize that this guy is a potential mass murderer, it's absolutely terrifying. What I find really interesting is he got picked. He got picked to be the bachelor who would get hooked up with this gal. Oh, God. This is not going where you're thinking it's going. Okay. He did not murder her. Thank God. Or rape her. Or anything like that. No, no, no. Thank God. He... She actually met with him afterwards, and because they don't have to go on a date if they don't want to, they can decide, you know, this is a bad idea. She said she got a weird vibe from him and decided not to go on the date. It could very well have saved her life. No kidding. This guy's a freaking monster. 
No kidding. This guy, this guy, they they found hundreds. I think it was almost one thousand photos of potential victims that he had taken pictures of in various states of oh of God. awfulness. I was gonna make a joke about this, but this is really not. You, you can't. You, you can't. This you is just can't. some serious. This guy was and is an absolute monster. And they actually have put up pictures on uh, on online of some of the photos that they can show. There's like a hundred of them that are actually able to be shown or port parts of the photo where they can focus just on the person's face to try to identify who these people are. And many families have already come forth saying, this is my child. They disappeared back in the 70s, back in the 80s, so back in the 90s. So he kept them too as like a relic. He kept them as mementos. Um, oh my God, that is, that is terrifying. terrifying. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And this freak job ended up on the dating game that is probably the most horrifying and weirdest thing i think i think you can i think that takes the cake in both categories yeah absolutely wow wow i mean that that you know to make another weird television one the only thing that that i think comes close to that and even then not even near a distant second at best was one of the uh, many iterations of power rangers one of the former cast members uh, was convicted of murdering their family, and it was due to some... I mean, clearly the person was not mentally well, because it was killing, I think, their parents or, like, his what, fiance or whatever it was. I think it was a Green Ranger, if I remember correctly. I don't, I, don't, I don't know, but it was in order to be able to get a sex change. Wow. So, yeah. And not that there's anything wrong with that. Hey, if you are a per- person who discovered that you are a female trapped in a man's body or vice versa, be who you are meant to be. It's the weird way that this person went about doing <laughs> doing yeah. that. And he was trying to kill his parents to get the money to pay for the surgery. So it was um, b- bizarre. Uh, bizarre and very tragic, of course. But I think this dating game guy, uh, that that just takes the cake. That is just unconscionable. Yeah. Unbelievable. Pretty pretty, pretty terrifying. Yeah. And so but now lucky I'm wondering. Her. Lucky her. Lucky her. But I'm wondering now. So now do they do background checks on. They do now. <laughs> I was going to say. They better after this incident. <laughs> yes, they do now. Oh, my gosh. Well, so this has been a fascinating uh, foray into the very checkered history of game shows. Um, I shouldn't say the word checkered. Of the very versatile history of uh, game shows. And I also just want to state that we talked a lot about American game shows. There are game shows around the world. In fact, in the United Kingdom, the game show still reigns supreme. And the whole idea of, like, the panel show... That is number one and has been for many, many years. Absolutely. In fact, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was an import. Yep, from- absolutely. And you find game shows around the world. Some of them are absolutely bizarre. Much of the ones that come out of Japan. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, if you want a, a really funny uh, entertainment, watch a Japanese game show. You can probably find them on G4. Uh, yeah, and like, some of them... Uh, uh, Ninja Warrior, right? That's sure. coming to NBC this fall. Some of them, though, are deliberately over the top, obviously, for their shock value. America has had some doozies as well. If you remember Man vs. Beast, that was horrible. Yeah. Do not get in a boxing match with a kangaroo. <laughs> you will lose. Not only that, but it's so unnecessary. And think of the poor kangaroo. That kangaroo wants nothing to do with you. Sure. Nothing. Or was it a guy getting a, a, like a strength battle with an orangutan? Do you, you know what? The guy actually won. And it, while we're on the topic of strange and tragic things that have happened out of television shows, he ended up working for the contractor Blackwater 
you remember them in Iraq, the first Blackwater USA, yeah, the, one of the few times we've actually had a privatized military. Yeah. Well, remember what happened to a lot of the guys got trapped in that Humvee and were taken out. And remember in Iraq, they, 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 you know, like burned the corpses and yeah. strung them up and all that. He was one of them. He oh, was the wow. guy who beat the chimpanzee. I'm sorry. This freaking cracked article's got got awful things in it. I yeah. apologize. Well, that's not uncommon for cracked. Yeah. But, um, Hence the name, but yeah. yeah. Definitely. Uh, and, I mean, there is a wealth of one. Like, there's a bizarre one. I mean, Wipeout is hilarious. That was a Japanese uh, import. And Wipeout is just... I mean, who doesn't like to see someone just eat it really, really hard <laughs> when they're trying to get through an obstacle course, right? That, that's the fun. That's the just... It's good old slapstick. But there's this one. His name was Nasubi. And the name itself means something very odd in uh, Japan. I think it means like it doesn't mean seaweed, but it means something kind of like an odd inanimate object kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And this guy, his whole thing was it was a reality show where he was forced to live in an apartment for six months. And what he didn't know, and this guy was a struggling comedian and actor. And Nasubi, when he signed the contract, didn't read in a very important clause that they had to take all of his clothes when he was there. So this guy is completely naked the entire time. And so obviously they're they're blocking that right. part out. And they give him a ton of contest forms to fill out. And his whole goal is this is how he survives. He is given no food. He is given no water. I mean, I think there's water on the tap. But that's how he lives. And basically, what's really, really even more bizarre is as this gets along, he gets a little crazier. Because <laughs> uh, he's left pretty much alone for most of the time. And uh, when he wins these prizes, he doesn't use it for, like, clothing either. You know, he obviously gets it for food so he can survive. Um, but, like, that's the last thing on his mind uh, is just to get, you know, be, to be reclothed again. He just gets all this other weird shit in this apartment. Sorry again for swearing, but. Well, you figure they're going to black bar it anyway. Yeah. So who cares? Food's more important. Sure. He's trying to do an endurance test, right? He's trying sure. to survive. So, you know, you don't need underwear to survive. Sure, another weird one's like wearing like full blown like Mount Everest style like winter mountain climbing clothing while you're walking through the Gobi Desert. Like weird really, really weird stuff like that. Things that you have to sign off. If I die, it's totally okay. Exactly. And they're not responsible. And folks, if you want to do research on these topics, so we talked about cracked already. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I've mentioned before, if you're from LA or New York, the Paley Center for Public Media has loads of archives of both radio and television game shows that you can go and watch. You can go and watch. You bet your life. Uh, I know, because I went there with my grandmother. We did it. <laughs> yep. And um, and NPR actually has some really good stuff. They've got segments from old radio shows that I actually uh, were referencing in my research tonight, uh, in addition to uh, some articles that have been written on uh, early radio uh, talk shows. Of course, if you want to check out one of their more recent ones, uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is... Oh, Amazing. It is probably the best radio show or best game show across the world. I, I'm going to say it right now. It is so fantastic. Yeah. It is so perfect. And hey, if you uh, like hearing some of our own game shows, you can go to Nerds on Film and listen to Say Goodbye to My Large Enemy. And what was the one we did more recently? What was the title of that Gotta one? Gotta Gump It Up. Gotta, gotta Gump It Down a Little Bit. Or gump it, it Down a Little Bit, that's right. Yeah, where we did our famous uh, Bizarro Movie Quotes games. Of course, the Quizmaster speaks before you. Indeed. Uh, and if you want to learn a little bit more about the historical context and some a little more information about what we're talking about from the 1930s all the way up to today, uh, Dr. Olaf Herschelman, PhD in communications, uh, wrote this book called Rules of the Game, Quiz Shows in American Culture. It is available on Amazon for about $22, and it goes into a pretty uh, detailed history and uh, understanding, in-depth understanding of why American culture is so into these game shows. 
Indeed they do. Yeah, and with that, sir, thank you for another late night podcast, right? Ooh, it's a late one. Um, folks, I will not be here next week for Nerds on History as we are getting into the week before Les Miserables opening. I will be in rehearsals going very late at night. I will not have time to record. However, the good news is, effective uh, next week, I will be back on Nerds on Film again. So you can listen to me there, and Eric will have a substitute for the next week. We don't know yet. It'll be a mystery guest. It could very well just be me. <laughs> We'll I think see. I think what you should do is do the thing that I've been saying we should do the whole time. If you if you couldn't make it, I'm not doing the. No, well, don't spoil it for the audience. Sean. Oh wait, I thought, I thought we already said that. No, we did. We didn't say oh. it. No, I don't want to do it. Fine. You can do it. It's Fine. too much work. You lunatic. <laughs> it's brilliant. I assure you. Hey, I'm not saying it's not brilliant. I'm just saying I, I don't got time for that. All right, anybody got time for that? Typically, <laughs> <laughs> we just said that on the podcast. <laughs> we, <laughs> On a history podcast, of all, <laughs> of all things. Listeners, if you want to, uh, of course, interact with us, you can go to our Facebook page. We now have one Facebook page. Uh, we merged Nerds on History and Nerds on Film together. That's right. They became the Megatron of Facebook pages, which we call Nerdonomy. <laughs> <laughs> Megatron would have sucked if it only had two the Megatron, The Megazord, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it became the Megazord of Facebook pages that we now call Nerdonomy. <laughs> Uh, please go ahead and check us out. Interact with us there. We have uh, little contests that go up daily. And, of course, you can uh, win some airtime here on Nerds on History or Nerds on Film, where we'll say pretty much whatever you want us to say within reason, and as long as it doesn't offend anyone uh, too horribly. Also, of course, you can follow us on Twitter. You can follow me at The Brickmont. I'm at Brian Moriarty. And don't forget, of course, our company Twitter account is at Nerdonomy. And check out our brand new website, that this this man who sits across from me has labored on since freaking what April? April. Oh, in my spare time to get this thing rebuilt. Thank you so much, by the way. It yeah. looks really great. It really does. Yeah, it's it's amazing how hard it is to cut the crap out of a website just to make it look much cleaner and simpler. Painstakingly, how you think how easy it is to implement in your head, way harder to implement on a web page and make it work the way you really want it to work well it, i have to say though it looks great and thank you for all your hard thank work you. I and effort that. you could also go there and say thank you brian by clicking on the donate button give a little uh, little money over to the hard work here of course all proceeds go towards nerdonomy and supporting us and uh we would uh mucho appreciate you yeah. of all the things we do do you do tonight do that one first and then then no follow us on twitter and facebook and all those great things yeah and until next time Stay nerdy, my friends, and tune in next week. Same nerd time, same nerd channel, nerdonomy.com. Hey, Brian. What? It may just be that it's one in the morning and I'm tired and we just finished recording this podcast, but... Have you ever noticed that picture of Chewbacca on the wall? Its eyes, they follow you. Oh, that's ridiculous. I've, I've never even... Did. Ah!